The first reading is from Isaiah 53, verse 4. It's in page 523 in your church Bibles. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with, with the rich in his death. Though he had no, done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offering and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The second reading is from Romans chapter 3, and it's on page 797. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some do not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our righteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away, they together have become worthless. 
There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. But now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let me add my welcome. Uh, My name's Mark, if you're new and we haven't had the chance to meet before. We continue in Romans, so if you attempted to close it, flick it back open to that uh, page 797 where Anna just read from. Uh, As you're finding your way there, in the coming weeks we'll continue to work our way through Romans. Uh, I won't be uh, amongst us, we're going to be away for the next couple of weeks, but have the pleasure of Steve preaching to us next week and the week after one of our linked missionaries, Morgan Powell, will be amongst us and preaching to us from Romans. So uh, keep coming, keep learning from uh, what God has to teach us from Romans. Uh, Can I as well add... E-news, as our church grows, um, as more and more events happen, more and more people are involved, uh, it's hard to keep everyone in the loop. Uh, We use E-news, an email newsletter, as a way of keeping everyone in touch. Uh, It shares all the kind of important things you need to know, events, classifieds, prayer points, updates on buildings and parish council and ministry. It's really useful to know the kind of stuff that's on there. Um, You may be new or you may have been coming for ages and have never signed up. Can I encourage you, use that response slip on the back of it, say, I'd like to get it. Uh, But if perhaps you're someone who does get it, can I encourage you, open it and read it. Uh, That's the second part of the process of information, isn't it? Uh, One is we send it out, the other is you open and read it. Uh, Do make the most of uh, that information so you know what's going on in church life. Uh, But let's pray that uh, God might speak to us this morning. Our Lord and Father, we thank you for your goodness. Uh, We thank you that you're a loving and gracious God. Uh, We thank you that you invite us into a relationship with you uh, through your Son and by your Spirit. And Father, we pray that uh, this morning as we look at your word, uh, you would be applying it to us, uh, helping us to grow in our relationship with you that we might grow to become more and more like you. Uh, Father, give us the comfort of your word that we need, uh, but challenge us also by it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Given the choice, uh, are you a justice or mercy person? Given the choice, do you want justice or mercy? 
Uh, the Proverbs, Proverbs 17, verse 15, give a description of what our God is like. It says this, Acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. Acquitting the guilty, condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. You know, our God is a God of justice. And that does sound good, doesn't it? Like, we hate legal injustice. You know, I'm glad to hear that in the, in the past week's uh, the, the key figures of the Khmer Rouge, including the, the second in command, number two, to Pol Pot, uh, have been hauled up at last to face justice. And you, you kind of go, it might be 40 years on since the killing fields of Cambodia, where a fifth of the population was slaughtered. But you go, it's better late than never, isn't it? You know, we want justice. We don't want to see the guilty acquitted. Uh, in the same way, you know, Radko Mladic, uh, Serbian orchestrator of Srebrenica massacre, he's been called to account. And like God, we detest the guilty being acquitted. You know, given the choice between justice and mercy for, for Mladic and the Khmer Rouges, number two, I suspect we want justice. Of course, then there are the moments a little bit closer to home, aren't there? You know, we come back a, a touch late to find a, a ticket on our car. Uh, that, that time you spoke carelessly and you hurt your friend deeply by your words... Or the time where you were just too self-absorbed in your own little world to actually help the person who is clearly in greater need than you were. Yeah, we might want justice, and we particularly want justice on the guy who cut us in traffic, and particularly want justice on the person who was too selfless, uh, selfish to, to care for us. But we might want justice, but we all need mercy, don't we? Yeah, is it right that we demand justice on others and not on ourselves? And more important than what we want is, what should we expect? Now, given the choice, does God go for justice or mercy? Because Romans 3, and that's where we're up to in Romans, it, it leaves us kind of hanging, sitting on the horns of a dilemma. Uh, and, and this morning we need to feel something of that dilemma and that tension that eventually we can get the relief from it. Uh, it's a dilemma of justice and mercy. You know, what hope do faithless people have before a faithful God? Or, or to, to spin around and look at it from God's point of view, the dilemma for him, how can God maintain his integrity? How can he maintain his righteousness and possibly save anyone, let anyone off? And it's not this kind of out there dilemma for us to kind of speculate. You know, it's, not, it's not pointless speculation like, you know, what's the sound of one hand clapping or um, how long is a piece of string? You know, it's not that kind of speculation. This this is a really important dilemma to have solved because God's reputation hangs on it and in fact every one of our futures hangs on the solution to this problem. And the opening section, 1 to 20, doesn't leave much room for loopholes. Um, our faithlessness is clear. Uh, Paul particularly targets the Jews in verse 2 that, that they've had all the advantages uh, of God's word entrusted to them but they have acted unfaithfully. But it's not just a Jewish problem. Verse 9 all alike are under sin. The sense of under there is that, that sin has mastery or power over us. We are under sin's spell. We, we do what it wants. And, and Paul then kind of backs it up with this, with this litany of, uh, of Old Testament quotes with a, a kind of cumulative effect in verse 10 to 18. Uh, so in, in 10 to 12, there's this, there is no one 
and it's repeated over and again. No one is righteous, not even one. No one who understands, no one who seeks God. And then he moves on to this expression of sin in words in verse 13 and 14. And then from 15 on, the kind of actions, the violent actions it leads to. But if you went to the effort of reading each one of these little mini quotes in their context, you'll see that verse 10 to 12 refers to all of humanity verse 13 and 14 to to the wicked enemies of God's people and then those final ones 15 to 17 it's God's own people Paul's punch there is that if God's people his very own treasured possession are entirely verse 17 uh, verse 18 uh, without fear of God in their eyes if they're not like that well, well what hope has the rest of the world his conclusion verse 20 no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Again, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is, we were made to be the image of God. We were made to reflect him in all his glory. You know, we were to be his glory in all creation, but we have failed to reflect his character as an image should. You know, we're a failed mirror at that length. Yeah, our unfaithfulness is clear. And so too is God's faithfulness. In verse 3, it starts out, the the infidelity of his people, does that create a problem for God? You know, they've chased other other gods despite all he's done. Does that mean he said, all right, well, I made some promises, I'm backing out? No, 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 verse 4. Let God be true and every man a liar. That is, God is true, he is faithful. He, he, everything he promises, he keeps to. You know, and is, is that kind of unswerving integrity that God has, that that makes him, in verse 6, an appropriate judge of the world. It's that kind of unswerving integrity that God has, that he will always be true. That means verse 19 is a fairly alarming prospect that the whole world is held accountable to God. Again, to remind you of that proverb I started with, Proverbs 17, 15, acquitting the guilty, condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. You know, we've got on one side a judge of such integrity and truth that there's going to be no backroom deals and he's not going to turn a blind eye to evil and he's not going to share in corruption. And so you can see some of the bind that God is in. You know, how can he possibly maintain his own integrity, his own righteousness and let off those who won't seek him and those who turn aside to no good and those who deceive with their tongues and, and those who have mouths full of bitterness? How can, he, how can he ignore that? And so then how can he possibly have mercy on you and me? Because all alike, we're under sin's power. And you see the bind we're in. You know, what, if, what hope do, do faithless people have before a faithful God? You know, when, it, when it is exposed and we stand before God and all our failings and all our self-interest is seen and we are left to our own efforts, what hope? Well, none. Now, John Chapman tells a story of a time he preached at Oxford University and uh, he preached on the coming judgment of God. And after the meeting, a young woman came up to him. uh, She wasn't happy. (laughs) He describes her as being white with rage. So this livid woman challenges him and says, I hate people who try to frighten you into the kingdom. And as the conversation went on with her, uh, Chapo said to her, the question is not, have I tried to frighten you? But is there anything to be frightened about? there is something to be frightened about. What hope do faithless people have before a faithful God? And and you start to feel that dilemma. There's nothing we can do about it. 
And when God, who, who detests acquitting the guilty, how can he possibly save any of us? Mercy and justice seem to have, have come together and come up against each other, and it seems, you know, a Gordian knot, it seems unresolvable. Until the beautiful words of verse 21. Verse 21, but now. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones spoke of um, those two words, but now is the most beautiful words in the Bible because so often it, it precedes just wonderful news that's about to happen. But now in verse 21, but now God's solution is coming. That is, we're, we're getting back to the heart of the gospel. So way back in 1, 16 and 17, Paul had boasted of, of the power of salvation that is in the gospel for everyone who believes. And then he, he went on this long sidetrack to, to establish the, our need for it. This long digression, but now he's back on track. Verse 21, but now, but now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made, no, made known. God has a new righteousness to, to reveal. Now, how can faithless people have hope? Well, by God's intervention himself. Now, this is the heart of the gospel. This paragraph has been described from 21 to 26 as the most important paragraph in history by some. I'll leave that for you to work out, but it's certainly up there. The point that we need to treasure from it, uh, in Christ's death, God acts right and he makes us right. Uh, my paraphrase of, of verse 26, that in Christ's death, God is both just, that is, he acts rightly, and he is the one who justifies sinners, he makes us right. Uh, the first century poet Horace was uh, a bit of a uh, critic of the plays of his time, uh, think soapies of the time. He's like a TV guide critic. Uh, they would set up dilemmas, uh, plays of his time, so complex that they couldn't resolve it. And so they, they kind of had this major plot device was bring in a god uh, into the play and by magic he'd you know, kind of sort out all the problems and so then the equivalent of the credits roll. You know, it, it was cheap playwriting and he had to go, he said, do not bring a god onto the stage unless the problem is one that deserves a god to solve it. You know, what we've got is a problem that only a God can solve. We need God to come to centre stage. You know, the gospel's not a, an unnecessary plot device. You know, this dilemma is nothing less than what God himself could resolve. He is, he is bound to act rightly, but he longs to make us right. And in Christ, he manages to do both. At first, in Christ, God acts rightly. Uh, he acts rightly because Jesus himself was faithful. Uh, verse 22 um, it comes across in our translation as a tautology, uh, through faith in Jesus to all who believe. Uh, it's not actually a tautology there. It's better translated as through the faith of Jesus to all who believe. That is, the, the emphasis of verse 22 is, is God's righteousness being seen in how Jesus always acted faithfully. He always acted rightly. Unlike the rest of us who are faithless, he was the perfect reflection of the Father. He was the image of God. He was God's glory and not under his wrath. He didn't fall short. But going further than that, God acts rightly in genuinely, justly dealing with sin by taking that punishment on himself. Paul uses three images in that paragraph to capture it. The, the first is a, a, a law court image, a legal one uh, for all of us lawyers here. Uh, the image of justification in verse 24. Uh, to be justified is, is to be declared without guilt. And in Christ's death, the reality of your and my failure is borne by him 
and so that no longer does a, there's a charge stand against us. It's not that he, he's overlooking, he's not a corrupt judge who's pretending it's not there, that is, he is recognising evil for what it is and he is condemning it for what it is by taking our place in the dock. You know, in, in Christ, God acts rightly and, and deals with your lifetimes of failure. And so you can stand right before him. The second image is that of a slave market. An image of redemption, again, it's in verse 24. It was a more commonplace kind of image in those days. In in the first century, about 30% of the population uh, were slaves. So if you weren't a slave, uh, you probably owned one or you knew someone who did. And Paul points to the grim cost that God himself paid to break the power of sin. We who, in verse 9, were under sin's control, under sin's power. God has been faithful to his promises in buying back a people of his own, Nothing less than the price of his own son. Yet God is acting rightly to free us from sin's mastery. And that third image, perhaps it's the most confronting, is that of sacrifice, religious sacrifice. In verse 25, God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. You know, so if justification deals with, with guilt before the law and if, if redemption deals with this ongoing pattern of sin and the power sin has over you, atonement deals with the personal offence that God has suffered, that our sin has offended God with. You know, in, in his death, Christ turns the wrath of God away from us and he bears it upon himself. That is, his blood he's spilt, And as Isaiah puts it, though, our sins are as red as scarlet, they are washed white as snow. The offence, the anger, the rightful wrath of God is turned aside. Uh, John Stott put it, God himself gave himself to save us from himself. And and again, he is acting rightly by not ignoring the problem, by not pretending the wrath doesn't exist, but bearing the, the brunt of it himself. How is it that God can maintain integrity and save some? By taking our place, painful and shameful as it was. And the great flip side of that, the second aspect of it, is that his right actions mean we now stand right with him. Here at last is hope for faithless people. In verse 22, The offer is standing right before the judgment throne of God is for everyone, any who believes, all who believe. It doesn't matter about your background. It doesn't matter how great your sin, whether you're a particularly proficient sinner and have lots of them or not so good at sinning and only have a small amount. Either way, you can stand right before God. Now, as verse 25 points out, Jesus' sacrifice deals completely with every sin that has ever been committed even the sins that had been happening all the way leading up to before Jesus came into this world. The Anglican 39 Articles puts it helpfully. In Article 31, the offering of Christ once made is that of perfect redemption, propitiation, that's turning wrath aside, and satisfaction for all the sins of the whole world, both original and actual, and there is none other satisfaction for sin but that alone. He's trying to say... There's not a sin it can't cover. There's not a person it can't cover. And there's not another sacrifice that needs to be made. 
In the gospel, God is showing how righteous he is. He is demonstrating it. He has broken that dilemma. So he managed to be, again in verse 26, to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. You know, what, what, what hope do faithless people have before a faithful God? They have the blood of Jesus. That is their hope. You know, how can God maintain his integrity and righteousness and, and still save anyone? Well, by the blood of Jesus. That's how he does it. You know, the wonder of the gospel is, is that you don't have to choose between justice and mercy. Actually, the wonder is that, that they come together, they meet, that in the blood of Christ, justice and mercy come together and, as some have put it, they kiss perfectly. And when you and I see that God is both the one who always acts rightly and he is the one who can make us right before him in Christ, I think three things at least will flow. First is you'll marvel at what a great God we have. Now the blood of Christ shows that, that God is incorruptible. He is not a pushover. He doesn't turn blind eyes to evil. Uh, friends of ours we had dinner with the other night uh, used to live in Greece and they were sharing a little of the tales of uh, life in Greece and corruption in Greece there. Uh, they would say that loads of people in Greece don't pay tax and no one in Greece pays at all. Uh, for their experience, they, uh, they paid rent to their landlord's account, uh, but they had to fill out, they're expected to fill in paperwork, a different form stating that they were paying about a third of the price so the landlord could um, cut their declared tax. Uh, they'd been there for two years and uh, no one had even asked them about taxation. Uh, no one had asked them to pay anything and it seemed that they didn't even notice they were there. Uh, they went to their accountant and said, we want to pay some tax, and their accountant laughed at them. You know, and you kind of go, well, Greek economy at the moment, there's testament to ongoing corruption, isn't there? Uh, how much worse would a corrupt judge be who overlooked lies and hatred and murder and greed and immorality? But the blood of Christ says clearly, no, no, God has real, complete integrity. You know, if, if that's what he's willing to pay to see justice served, if he's willing to pay his own son to see justice met, he will certainly deal justly with every evil in the world. He is not a pushover to be presumed on. What a great God we have. You know, and even more uh, is his remarkable love and mercy. You know, in verse 24, there's a beautiful word. Our justification is freely given. We are justified freely by his grace. That is, God didn't have to save any of us. There's no compulsion on him. It's entirely free. It simply flowed from him and his love. You know, God might not be a pushover, but he's not, he's not cold or harsh either. Now, the great Baptist preacher Spurgeon spoke this way about Christ's motive on the cross. That the whole punishment of his people was distilled into one cup. And no mortal lip might give it so much as a solitary sip. But when Jesus put it to his own lips, it was so bitter, he well nigh spurred it. Let this cup pass from me. But his love for his people was so strong, he took the cup in both his hands, and at one tremendous draught of love, he drank damnation dry. You know, what a marvellous God we have. You know, who would act so rightly and yet so lovingly. Secondly, when we see God in his justice and in justifying us, it will destroy all Christian pride. It will destroy all your pride and mine. Because we're justified freely, uh, entirely by his action, you you start realising, what's my role in salvation, in being justified? Well, it's absolutely nothing. 
Uh, unless you want to count creating the problem, your sin, uh, which I wouldn't suggest is really a contribution. You know, not one of us here in this room today has anything to offer which would make God love us. There is nothing in us that would elicit his love. It's why uh, in 3.27, just after where we finish the reading, where we'll go into next, Paul speaks of there being no place for boasting because the gospel destroys every ounce of pride we might have. Yeah, and that's a good thing because there is nothing more dangerous to your eternal future than self-pride. You know, someone wrote, the thing that really separates us from God is not so much our sin, but our damnable good works. That is, when I sin, you know, that moment where I get angry over nothing uh, and I lose my temper, when I, when I think that malicious thought about the colleague and kind of hope that they go, you know, I realise I need a saviour and I'm driven back to God. My, my, when I'm aware of my sin, I go back to him. But when I you know, do that great charitable act, when I decide to donate just a little bit more than is comfortable to uh, that needy cause, when, when I you know, do put myself out and I look after that person who's uh, in, in great trouble, I run the risk of seeing my own goodness and not needing God. Now, that's the damnable good work, isn't it? You know, the, the blood of Christ, though, reminds us no amount of good works could, could get us anything except damnation. As verse 20 puts it, no one is going to be declared righteous in his sight that way. You know, my justification, my redemption is entirely his work. And so if you're, if you're tempted to think of yourself uh, in any way better than a, a wretched sinner, you know, if you find in your, your daydreaming uh, certain satisfaction that, isn't it good I don't gossip like the other women in my social group? Or you know, if you find yourself really not believing that there is nothing in you that God would be bound to love, Watch out. Look again at the saving blood of Christ and get some perspective and drive your pride well away because it will take you from God. Finally, if you see God the just and the justifier of sinners, it will create real, genuine Christian confidence. Yeah, sure, pride, self-reliance is driven out, but it's not an empty void. Uh, In its place, you get certainty. In Christ, we already stand right with God. Uh, the Reformers spoke about uh, us being simul justus et peccator, which I think all of us remember from Latin all those years ago. No, let me explain it. Uh, that is, we are at the same time righteous and a sinner. We are both those things simultaneously. Simul justus et peccator. That is, I know each day you have the same problem I have. That is, you fail. You don't do all the good you'd like to and you're a sinner just like I am. But at the same time in Christ, with your faith in him, you stand completely justified in God's sight. Without having to kind of cover up for your sin, without having to make up excuses for all the reasons why I was particularly tired, Lord, that's why I ended up doing... You you don't have to do any of that. You can say with 100% certainty you will spend eternity in heavenly splendour. That is the confidence that God, the just and justifier, gives. It's such a liberating truth, isn't it? You don't have to bear the weight of proving yourself. You don't have to be defensive anymore about every criticism because you've got your reputation to uphold because your reputation is simply both being righteous and a sinner. You are both and at once righteous and a sinner. That's the confidence you can have. 
So given the choice, would you demand justice or beg for mercy? Well, thankfully in the gospel, you don't have to choose. In the gospel, God's righteousness gets revealed. In the cross, God is both just and he is the one who can justify we sinners who have faith in Jesus. Let's give thanks and let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we thank you that you're a God of complete integrity and justice. You don't turn a blind eye to the evils of this world or even the evils within us. And at the same time, Father, we thank you that you still freely and in grace reach out to love us. We thank you for the blood of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his death. That means we can stand right with you despite uh, our sin. Father, may that fill us with confidence but drive out our fear. May we continue to marvel at the way you have solved this great problem and drawn us and made us justified in your perfect sight. In Jesus' name, amen.